Good morning. Good morning. I want to take a second for all of us to close our eyes for a minute. And bring someone, or more than one, into whatever feels for us in our body as the heart. Someone that we deeply want to relieve their suffering. Someone that we can feel that desire viscerally. Maybe ourselves. Maybe someone else, but not someone we have uh, an idea about, but that we feel. And touch into that feeling of wanting to relieve that suffering. It may come with feelings of sadness, may come with an aching, may come with a jitteriness, may come with expectations, may come with hope, may come with discouragement, may come wrapped in all kinds of other things but feeling into the raw, wholesome desire to relieve it. And allowing that to just expand and soften us. And maybe in doing that and feeling that, we include ourselves, the desire for our own suffering to end. Maybe we sense the bodies around us, a desire for their suffering to end, not losing touch with that feeling, including them in Maybe we even expand to the whole of the people in this room, desiring that every person we're sitting with in this retreat is relieved from suffering as we sit next to them, as we chant with them, as we work together, as we rest together, as we bow together. May we all be relieved from suffering together. And as we move through the day, and maybe we're walking home down the street, maybe we remember, may the person passing me be relieved from suffering. May our city, our nation, 
our world. Be free of suffering. And let whatever softness has made itself known, let that be the quality of our sitting. Let that be the quality of our time here together. And when it's not, we can bring compassion to that, to each thing that arises. May you be free of suffering. May I work for your freedom from suffering. May I devote myself and my life to your freedom from suffering. Yesterday we talked about the wisdom side of things. Being good Mahayana practitioners, today we'll talk about the compassion side of things. So we're looking at our karma and this practice of looking at everything that arises and seeing if we are projecting self onto it. Are we making it a me? Whatever's arising. It can be our home, it can be an idea of who we are, anything. Is there a me there? Am I hardening around it? Is the mind grasping? And when we notice that the mind is, we have a choice at that moment to either interrupt it or to grab on and keep going. But if we grab on and keep going, we might notice if that feels good and just see, does this feel good to keep grabbing onto this thing I think I am over and over and over again? Or the other way we grab is to avert, be averse to the things we are not. And does it feel good to keep doing this over and over and over again? But when we see that, there's a quality of the heart that has to be brought to it, which is to have this room for wanting the suffering to end, but not wanting the suffering to end in some kind of rigid mental way. <laughs> I want my suffering to end. But the way that we want the suffering to end for that person that we brought to our hearts in the first place. We want the suffering to end because we don't want them to suffer. We don't want ourselves to suffer. We don't want the world to suffer. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, the um, karuna, this word we translate as compassion, it doesn't particularly necessarily come with feelings we might call good in the beginning or comfortable. In fact, usually it doesn't. Usually when we begin to feel into our karma, it does not feel comfortable. I think of when I first heard these teachings of compassion, you know, where I, what, um, what kind of compassion I wanted. And I wanted the kind of compassion that made me feel good. I could be a good, compassionate, loving person, check. Or I had an idea of, I think, of Shitikarbha Bodhisattva, which goes through 
The Hell Realm's shaking. That's a Vajra staff back in that corner. And shakes that Vajra staff in order to scare demons away so that he can relieve the beings that are in hell who are being torn to shreds by glass and metal and fire and ice. And theoretically, that seemed good. But then something became really clear, which was the first fire I had to walk through was me. I really wanted the magic bridge over the fire. And so this fire is the karma, that the fruits of the karma. So, so when um, Dogen says, save the body for it is the fruit of many lies. This, um, and whether the word save, we've had discussions whether that's the right translation, but, but, the, um, but the body as the fruit of many lives. This is, he's talking particularly about what we when I talked about some yesterday. He's talking particularly about the body as there's all of these um, karmic actions. We do things with particular intentions, and they bear fruit. They bear fruit, and that fruit has residue in the body, eventually as a personality and a set of inclinations. And in traditional Buddhism, that happens over many lives. And the body that I am now is the fruit of those many lives. But even if it's not, even if we don't, aren't inclined toward that way of thinking, just within one lifetime, these bodily inclinations are the fruit of karma, of my intentional responses to the life that I'm in. And so to care for that body in a way that the caring is not about the body feeling good or not feeling good or anything like this. It's about caring for the karma that is arising as the body. It's about caring for the mind that is inclined in particular ways. It is about seeing the way we're causing suffering for ourselves and for others. And so that's one of the reasons in this school we sit still. We sit still because in not responding to our karmic inclinations, we see them. They come up. We want to do what we normally do, which is evade them in some way. Instead, we choose not to evade them. We choose to be upright with them and see them. Now, this can go too far where people don't take care of the pain of their body. Please take care of the pain of your body. But what takes time to develop is being able to discern when we are responding to the actual pain of our body and when we are responding to the agitation of our minds, when it is our mind that cannot be still. And that takes some time to discern, but always with the inclination of, always with the, not inclination, always with the vow, always with the vow. I am going to choose stillness to see the fruits of karma, to see how I am manifesting in the world, how I'm showing up.
what I think is true, what I think is not true, what I think is true of me, what I think is true of other people. And this discernment between what is caring for the body and what is the agitation of the mind, when we go to the level of the Sangha, it becomes all the more critical. When are we caring for the Sangha and when are we responding to the agitation of minds? Because to respond to the agitations of minds and run around and do things does not care for the Sangha. Stillness cares for the Sangha. A stillness that is awake, willing to speak, just like in Sasan, willing to voice what is there, what affects the community. When we think of our own zazen process over time, right, what happens is, you know, if, at least for me, there were many things that I saw five and six years in that were there one year in, but I didn't see one year in because I was not ready to see them. I didn't have the capacity to see them. They would have been too much. And so as our sangha unfolds, you know, what do we see together? What do we look at? What karma do we address? What is finding what feels good as opposed to clear seeing? And we may, and, and, and that is in our zazen, that is extremely important, is when are we going for comfort? And instead of clear seeing, because the clear seeing will take us through a fire that we're, eh. But then there's that little bit of effort, maybe one toe length more into the fire. Not full dive, but one toe length in, more than where we've been willing to go without moving. And then over time, the shoulders drop and spine straightens and there's more ease and the fire's okay. But if we can't, you know, this is where the tolerant, this is where we're talking about kshanti in the paramita class. This is where kshanti is so important because kshanti is this, what we translate as patience, is this being able to tolerate insult, being able to tolerate humiliation, being able to tolerate dishonor, these kinds of patience. And this practice actually becomes deeply important because if we can't tolerate that, how are we going to tolerate the suffering of the world? Because dishonor, yeah, that's bad, especially if it's systematic, if it's a kind of systemic humiliation. It's a difficult thing to tolerate. But the suffering of the world is massive. And we can't think our way there. We have to train our way there. The um, forms of Zen, the discipline of Zen, I hope here never become rigid. But I also hope here it is clear that they exist to cultivate a capacity 
to be wide and loving with all things. So when we're looking, when we're talking about collective karma, to go back to this idea of collective karma and bringing all this to it, the way we, I won't even say, the way we talk about karma here, I won't even say the way the tradition talks about karma, because I actually don't agree. But I think there is, I think the difference between collective and, and personal karma and the way that I want to talk about it is actually in the tradition. In fact, I think the Buddha was really clear on it because he addressed, so what, what, do I, what am I talking about? What I'm talking about is the way we normally talk about karma is that I've done things, they have intentions, and they bear fruits in this one, in this body and mind, that then seed again, and this, these eventually create a, what we might call a personality that has inclinations. But then we run into these interesting problems where that isn't quite descriptive enough when, say, everybody is personally intending to do good things, and yet there's collective terrible effects. Use the example of climate change yesterday. We may want to we all recycle and do the things we do, whatever that is. But something, we're not doing something. Something's not shifting. And we can go into all the details about why this is. It's less of a concern, but the, but the thing that I think is interesting, so let's talk about things we often talk about here. Let's talk about white supremacy or patriarchy. I just use these because they're very um, useful examples. And they are very up in our world. So if our minds are being collectively trained by something, in other words, if there is a way of viewing each other in the world that all of us are being born into and trained in, then that has an effect. That is going to have an effect on the way we view the world. It's going to be a karmic viewpoint. And although we're manifesting that individually, in other words, karma is happening in bodies. It's not happening in some theoretical space. It's having a collective effect. Because oftentimes those kinds of ways of being karmically conditioned are invisible to us because they're so widespread. And usually the people who become clear on it first are the ones who are, the, um, are experiencing the violence. Clarity there is first. That's usually where the clarity happens first. And so it's not as if, and, and, and this, is what, this is where I think karma is really important, because the seeds are being planted and replanted in individual beings, but sometimes without them being conscious of it at all. And this, in no way, this is very clear within the tradition that most of our karmic replication happens unconsciously. That's why it happens, because we are unaware of it. That is straightforward karmic theory. If I'm not aware of the arising fruits, they are going to reseed, and I'm just going to act on them and keep going, and I'm going to think it's who I am. Or I'm not going to think about it at all, and not even question it, because it's just operating. So what happens when these karm this karmic conditioning goes very wide, and whole peoples are being organized by them?
then it's a very different, then the same process, but harder to see. Because it isn't me walking around saying, well, I had this particular family and I have this particular set of inclinations and no matter what person I talk to, they have a different one, so it's easy to see mine. But it may not be easy to see the things that we're all sharing, especially if we're living in, in communities that are not interacting with other ones. So our own karma, which this should not be surprising, might be completely invisible to us but have collective effects. Whether we agree or disagree with, let's say, US foreign policy, it's having an effect on the world. It's having a karmic effect on the world, and I am a part of it. This is the part of karma that becomes very frustrating, <laughs> is that sometimes we are involved in karmic processes that are so old, all of our ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, so widespread and so broad that we feel powerless when we recognize them. And we don't want to feel powerless. Separate self does not want to feel powerless. It wants to feel, it wants to learn about karma so that it can get control over it. And then start guiding it where it wants to go. But this just cultivates more karma. Ultimately, for Buddhists, unwholesome karma because it's based in separation. Karma is over there. I'm going to get control of it. I'm going to wrangle it in the direction I need to wrangle it. Ain't the way it works. We are flowing in the karmic conditioning of ourselves, of our lives, of our communities. And the job is to be still with it witness it, understand it, and not buy into it. The freedom doesn't come, <laughs> this sounds so funny and obvious, but it's really important, the freedom doesn't come from more control. It doesn't come from somehow controlling the situation more. But that doesn't mean that we can't, but, the free, but freedom from karmic conditioning, or within, I should say within, freedom within our karmic conditioning knowing what the Buddha said, knowing that the self grasping aggregates of the mind, knowing that the mind is grasping itself all the time, is grasping what arises in it, it's grasping, 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 being released from that, stopping the grasping, frees us to respond in ways that come from healing and wholesomeness. It frees us to respond in ways that we might not think of. It frees us to respond in ways that are dharmic, it frees us to respond in ways of life just coming through one because life wants to be whole. Once is maybe too strong. Life is simply whole. Life doesn't see no aspect. It's human confusion. Otherwise, there, isn't, there aren't trees sitting around seeing themselves as different from other trees. Probably. I don't know that for sure. But they don't seem to act like it. There aren't inter-forest wars. So this is why when we expand, when we expand what we call the self from this tying it to a kind of individual, personal, psychological way of looking at the self, which is just there's a me that goes through time back to a baby, and that's the only thing I'm responsible for. 
it is, in a way, what I'm the only thing I'm responsible for. But what makes that up? Much of what made that up came before that little baby was born. It was already there. Baby's born into it, totally conditioned by all this stuff, completely out of that baby's control. And now I'm responsible for that. Now I'm responsible for clarifying and metabolizing all of that stuff that I've taken up. If we choose this path, if we don't choose this path, then you can blow it all off. But <laughs> if, you, if, there, if there is a desire to relieve the suffering of the world, to live a bodhisattva vow, then you can't blow it all off. If we want a human community that can live together in a loving way, then we can't blow it off. And many of us, if we really go deep, may find that we don't quite trust that yet, the possibility of a human community that can live together and love each other. And that's OK. We bring compassion to that. And we recognize the vulnerability of that kind of trust, because there are so many wounds that to arrive at that trust is enormously difficult. And that needs to be cared for every single step of the way. I hope that we can be a community, a sangha, that understands how to care for the wounds that resist loving each other at first. Because they just do. At first, it's, who the hell are you? Get away from me. I have no reason to trust you. We have been seriously let down. And there are probably most of those people were doing their best. In fact, arguably all of them were. They would have done better. So the only thing that I want to say, I'll wrap up, is let's not be confused that the karma we're responsible for is somehow neatly packaged in the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. I am this person who lived this life with this kind of things happening to me, and so on, and so on, and so on. Because the story we're telling ourselves about who we are, whatever that story is, cannot possibly include all the ways we've been conditioned. So that means that there has to be an open curiosity when somebody says, you're having this effect. I'm feeling you this way. Have you thought that maybe you're not seeing this or that or this or that? And then to be able to say, no, I actually have not thought about it. Or I'm feeling a great deal of resistance to you pointing it out right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that is that openness to whatever the feedback is, is what is going to create the mortar of a sangha. Without that, 
It's a tough road. It's a tough road. So thank you for taking part in that. May our intentions equally Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.